What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back or welcome to the High Flyers podcast. For the curious ones, where we share diverse experiences in life, not just work, tune in and learn to fly high in your own way from value creators and problem solvers in all aspects of society. Learn about their sunrise, magic moments, hustle, and so much more to help us all be 1% better every day together. And I'm your host, Virit Agawal. And all you can imagine those range of emotions, and as you say, the the public nature of it only compounds these thought processes. And you can have that moment of should I run and hide? Or you, you know, and you can fade off into the distance, or do you want to kick? Do you want to step up? look yourself in the mirror and say you know what regardless of what's happened i can control what is going to happen from here and and i think that's relevant to any number of professions any number of experiences because ultimately you have a choice as to what the outcome can be or how you can approach the outcome and i think that the process involves the anger the grief um the negativity. That's Ed Cowan, and this is episode 56. Many of us love watching or playing sport, and as a society, we often look up to athletes as heroes and examples of high performance. But what actually happens behind the scenes? This is a candid, self reflective, and inside the mind of former Australian cricket player whose journey to that goal, only starting to play cricket at the age of 13. That too with his brothers and dad in their backyard, waking up at 5am to train while struggling, study and work. I asked Ed about his focus and dedication, his public painful learning being dropped from the team whilst playing overseas, how he dealt with this, favourite period in his playing career, playing with superstar athletes and learning their 1% habits. Also hear about Ed's passion and work helping other athletes transition out of sport, publicly publishing his cricket diary, founding Tripod Coffee, his conviction in the Allbirds business, and staging to the end, where Ed shares some inspiration that was above his wall through his cricketing career. This would have to be, without a doubt, one of the top five conversations on the show so far, so please do enjoy. Ed Cowan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited by this. I love the format of this show in particular. Hope, I mean, my only fear is that I'm not that interesting. So hopefully I can create some value for for the listeners as we kind of dig in to my story from sport to life to business. But I'm I'm in your hands, mate. I love the humility. That's always a good sign for, to start off the show. And then Nick Crocker, who put us in touch, has spoken highly of you. So he's given me a couple of questions as well to ask you. So we'll get to that later in the show. Now, let's start off with some f- fun facts, Ed, just to set the scene. Where were you born and where do you live now? I was born in, I mean, you live in Sydney, Vidit, and you probably drive past the old women's hospital, which is just near Five mm. Ways in Paddington. That was where most of the babies of, of the eastern suburbs of, of Sydney were born. It's now 
overly expensive apartments. But back in June 1982, I was uh, the third boy in a family now of, of, of three boys. Um, I grew up uh, just down the road from Paddington and, and despite my many travels around the world, including a, a long stint living in Hobart of all places, I've, I've settled back in the bottom of Paddington. So uh, yeah. <laughs> life comes full you circle. I believe you were in Tassie for what, seven years, is that right? I was, yeah, yeah. and I'm sure we'll talk Mm. about that because that was Mm. a a massive life decision at the time that proved to Mm. be probably the the best decision I made from a professional, personal Mm. um, point of view. And Mm. I I just loved it down there, but we'll get into Mm. that. Mm. And, And second fast fact, what was your first job and what do you do now? Well, officially my first job was selling cupcakes i used to uh, when i <laughs> when i grew up and, and kind of even just talking about it, i've never been asked my first job but on on sundays the the three girls that lived up the road they're three boys my family three girls and the family up the road very close family friends mm. we used to bake cakes and cupcakes and flog them outside the corner store which i don't think they appreciated uh and so if that doesn't count as the first job which i think it probably mm. should i think the next qualification is well what did you next get paid for and it's a bit embarrassing to say that my my next official job was, was probably playing cricket as a yeah. teenager uh, semi-professionally I, I think you'd say but in between times there was a whole heap of you know pulling beers and serving chicken and a whole range of things but officially uh, it, it would have had to be some kind of 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 payment related to not scoring many runs. Mm, and what do you do now? Second part of the question, sorry to admit that. I now work at TDM Growth Partners, which is a business that was founded by my big brother who I shared a bedroom with till he was mm. 18. Very, very tight. Uh, he's four years older than me. He has grown this business from a thought bubble on a floor of an apartment while he was recovering from a back injury into a investing business that manages a bit over $2 billion, employs 40 people and is is really uh, at the peak of its powers and doing amazing things in, in the world of, of investing. So there are some, mm. obviously some stories in between from, from growing up playing cricket and going to university to working for an investment firm, but that's where I, I spend my energy at the moment. There's a bit of a side hustle in Tripod Coffee, uh, which is a lot of fun and, and started out as, as a bit of a real-life MBA and turned into a, a serious business. But most mm-hmm. of my time, to call it 95% of my time, is spent in the four walls of, of TDM on Macquarie Street in Sydney. Mm. And you're a podcaster in your own right. I mean, for listeners who haven't checked it out, definitely get onto Ed Cowan's TDM podcast. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> it's it's much easier answering the questions, uh, yeah, I must I, admit. I, I, and so there, there's scaling up, thanks for the plug, uh, which kind of delves into the growth stories of amazing companies from around the world. And, you know, there's still a, a link into cricket with the, the weekly ABC Cricket Grandstand mm podcast with Corbin Middlemass so I spend yeah spend quite a few hours behind behind the mic asking mm. the question so it's nice to be on the other side mm. I've got a question there actually later on we'll talk about how post cricket did commentary interest you we'll, we'll get into it later on let's leave that as a pin for now we'll get into it later on and now Ed given the name of the show and we talk all about how reimagining a high flyer is there a high flyer in your life that perhaps didn't get the recognition 
such a great question. I, I mean, there are lots that come to mind. The, the person that comes to mind the first, and that's usually the, the gut feel that you should go with, and you might think this is a, a cliched response, is my wife. And mm. many, I mean, no, no one probably knows this because we're, we're very private people, but she was a incredible radio and TV personality. When we first mm. met, she had a radio show on Nova, TV show on Channel 7, TV music show incredibly talented and doing wonderful things on a, on a great career. I then sucked her out of that job and moved down to Tasmania for my own career. And, you know, she went from working at Nova to the local radio station and went from giving away cars to $10 spec savers vouchers. So mm. she was out of, not out of work, but chose not to work for the best part of a, a decade. And, and we had a, a beautiful daughter in Romy and we traveled the world playing cricket but she has since, she's one of the most creative people I know and is an absolute high performer when it comes to voiceovers and and the like. Uh, and recently she has started voicing this kids podcast and oh, wow. uh, among other things. But just mm. watching that flourish from an idea and nothing to so many kids and teachers listening in their classrooms and on their way to school has been amazing to watch. And of course, no recognition, low pay, but is, is really creating value in the world. It's a, a kid's news podcast called Morning Kids and she's doing an amazing job. Mm. Oh, well, kudos to Ed's wife. And I think it sounds like she was a podcaster before podcasting became mainstream. Well and truly, yeah. She was, mm. she was 10 years too early. <laughs> amazing now let's zoom out ed and go back to your sunrise your your early journey your childhood you mentioned you're born in sydney tell me about the influence of your family about your environment what are your memories my memories are growing up in an incredibly loving and in many ways traditional household i kind of mentioned that i'm i'm the youngest of of three boys we're all almost exactly four and a half years apart and that was deliberate uh with with the view that if we're going to have a family, we want them to be close, but not too close. That creates competitive tension. Not knowing that there were boys on the way, but you know, you do see mm. siblings that are eighteen months apart or two years apart. Sometimes they end up not as as great friends, just because the childhood is is so driven by um, by the, the competitive nature, particularly with boys. And so, with that age gap, what it became was my eldest brother is nine years older than me. Uh, he was almost like a, a second fatherly figure in many ways by the time I got to nine and ten and he was off at university. Uh, the middle brother, Tom, who I now work for, uh, you know, we, we're great mates. I'm mates with a lot of his friends. Um, and so it was a very loving environment, which is very odd with with just boys because usually there are rumbles and fights. I can't remember a single fight growing up wow. no fisticuffs no backyard blues lots of backyard cricket lots of passing the mm. footy but it was kind of a nice age and almost a uh, it's almost akin yeah, to I should them. get your parents on the podcast yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh most uh, almost quasi mentors you know they had seen mm. the things that i was going through before and uh, as opposed to keeping it to themselves because they didn't want me to excel they actually passed on the advice and i learned so much uh, from both my brothers, you know, my middle brother Tom, I, I, I saw how hard he worked at high school and and how he studied, and that really inspired me. And I I was inspired by my oldest brother and how he connected 
with people and 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 made how, how he made people feel his friends you know very much the life of the party always um a smile on his face never n- never a frown nothing was ever too hard and and both of those came from my equally from my mother and my father um again very traditional dad worked mum stayed at home looked after three boys and and did a few things on the side but was very focused on on making sure that the family unit was together dad highly entrepreneurial had worked for himself from the age of 25 uh fingers in pies everywhere other memories aside from the you know the 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 fact that dad always would take the school holidays off working for himself and so we were always together as a family it was it was a, a working family and dad would leave the house at seven and get back at seven but when school holidays was on his focus was always on the kids and creating space for the family and that family value you know resonates with me now as someone who's trying to balance kids and and work life and and trying to make something of the world and mum was the kind of person who would never say no to anyone, completely giving of herself first and foremost to anyone that asked, was always saying yes, was always helping people. Sadly, she's no longer with us, uh, but left a, a really lasting legacy on the family as, as, as the matriarch. And so they're my memories and there, there are lots of quirks in between. You know, I grew up in a business family. People think, oh, it must have been a sporty family. You know that was my question, actually. If I if I can ask, because I've heard you talk on a lot of podcasts about that business influence early on, and your parents telling you to study and yeah. and not have sport as your, as your sole focus, and, and that's fascinates me, right? Because if you listen to any ex athlete, sport consumed their childhood because you have to have that almost delusional desire to become a sports player, right? So how how did that eventuate? Looking back, because I mean. You did play for Australia, which, yeah. which frankly, a very small percentage of the population achieves that. But you also studied, you got the MBA. So when you think back to when you were maybe a teenager, when you had some understanding of the world, right? Was that a conversation your dad sat you down and said, Ed, you can pursue sport, but I want you to have a business career as well? Like, how did that happen at that age? Yeah, I think that, I mean, there's there's probably some innate things in, in amongst the interactions of the family. So you know, one anecdote, we used to fight over the, the business section of the paper, which was on the same side as the sport and would get to the sport eventually. Mm. But the the four boys in the family would talk about business at the dinner table from a very young age. As I kind of mentioned, mm. that was very entrepreneurial. So it was just part of the culture of the family to be interested in business. Uh, and, you know, books equally, you'd get the Ashes Diary of Steve Waugh, but you'd also get um, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. You know, the Bill Ferris story mm. for Christmas in your stocking as a fourteen-year-old. So it was a very wow. open-minded uh, sort of upbringing from that point of view. I don't think Dad ever sat me down and said, "You must do anything in my entire life." But it was very mm. clear, and he would consistently reiterate. He was like, "I will support your cricket or any passion that you have, as long as I live." And he would. He would throw balls in the nets almost every afternoon and on weekends and because I, I didn't play club cricket you know these days you play under nines club cricket and te- i didn't play a game of formal cricket till i was almost 13 or 14 and mm-hmm. so my, i learned the game in the nets from my mm-hmm. brothers and dad throwing balls and so as i grew up he he was a big influence on my on my cricket career but he would always say i will support you until i'm blue in the face and and fall off the, the face of the earth 
But let it be known that you need to look after yourself, invest in yourself to make sure that if this doesn't work, that you are well placed to create some value in the world. And whether that mm. it, you know, whether that's education, whether that's getting a job, whether that's learning about other things in the world, just make sure that this is not your only egg. And so he was well ahead of the curve of making sure that there was range in my life and and balance from an education point of view or other interest point of view. And I grew up with a, with these competing interests that I all loved. I, you know, I I mm. played rugby or or cricket on the weekend and I'd been the debating team on Friday night and I wasn't scared that that was uncool or you know like it was it was very much go and enjoy whatever you can and make sure that whatever you're doing and you're passionate about you're doing it bloody well because ultimately that's what's going to create success in your life so I could not be more thankful for that viewpoint and as you called out and sorry if I'm if I'm waffling here as you called out I've seen so many athletes it's lucky that I played for a long time but I saw so many athletes mm. either drop out of school to do it mm. have no other interest while they play and that really affect their performance or ultimately finish the game with no other experience and have really struggled in transition and so at no mm. point whether it be trying to make it making a career of it or finishing your career is it beneficial not to have other interests and and not just interests but passions? Yeah, it's a topic that I want to get into shortly. I, I also want to ask you, Ed, did you have any heroes growing up? Like, did you have any posters on the wall that you're like, I want to be like that person one day? Yeah, yeah I did. Uh, so some aspirational. I mm. remember uh, above my desk and I was a, a fastidious studier at school I, I think my marks were because i i tried i liked learning mm. but I, I tried hard and that meant putting in hours and the photo was of kieran perkins punching oh, yeah. the punching the air after he won from lane eight uh, at the olympics mm. having mm. been written off um you know not quite had been injured just qualified and won the the gold medal from lane eight and it's him punching the air and there was a uh, a poem attached to that for inspiration. I mm. had uh, a, a poster of Ricky Ponting, mm. you know, a, a, a cricketing <laughs> idol uh, who I was yeah. lucky enough to end up playing a lot of cricket with, which was a, a bit crazy in its own self. And then, you know, like every teenage boy that grew up in the 90s, I, I had Joey from Dawson's Creek on the wall as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. So quite, quite a balanced hero <laughs> set there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and tell me when you got to the age of and it sounds like you your parents influenced your maturity pretty quick more than most kind of young boys right when you got to when you're 17 18 and you're probably more aware of the world aware of yourself what was success to you at that age like obviously now you've got a benefit of hindsight but at that age when you were 18 so you're finishing year 12 what was success to ed cowan yeah I'm a, looking back and it, it's hard to kind of you, the temptation is to rewrite history of course, I was a at times probably a cocky little shit, and I'm, I'm sorry to. <laughs> to <laughs> I think we all to, have been. Right? <laughs> so, success was, you know, if you didn't play cricket for Australia, then um, you have to get 99 in your HSC or whatever it was uh, at the time. You need to get into commerce law at, at Sydney Uni. Uh, but I'll, I was super driven by, by the age of 18, cricket was absolutely 
my focus and the rest was un- was very much in the frame because I, I, I wanted to make sure that my passions and interests were also being nurtured outside of cricket. But my goodness, I gave some, some time and energy and, uh, you know, that, that ultimate view of success was certainly cricket focused. Mm. Now, one, probably one more question there on the cricket team before we go to magic moments. And, and the reason I ask is, so me growing up, I was a big tennis player, but I never had the focus or the discipline, right? I really enjoyed it and I got all the support from parents and the environment, but never had the dedication. Like looking back, I was just mucking around. How did you have that dedication at the age of 18? Because you had so many pathways, right? Like you could have easily gone down the business route and probably had the career you've had now, but fast-tracked it, worked with your dad. Where, where did that kind of dedication for sport come from? Because I've got a lot of respect for sports people who aspire. Because like you said, a lot of people give up everything for it, but then don't make it. Mm. Or one injury stops your stops you in the tracks. What gave you that? Did you have that inner belief at 18 that you can make it? I, th- I think there was always, there was self-doubt. And this is back before there were rookie contracts to be professional mm. cricketers and cricket hadn't really turned fully professional at a domestic level. So it was a, a different world in that you had to prove yourself to be incredibly good to make it. And that, that mm. drove me. And so I, I think also that self-doubt was I, I knew that one, what's one thing that I can control? Well, I might not be as talented as that bloke over there or that one over there, but I can control the things that I'm good at and that is managing my time and I'm going to put the time and effort in to do it and I would get up, you know, study at 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. so that I could go to the nets at 8 till 9 to get to school Mm. or conversely. And and even when I started uh, working after university, I'd work 80-hour weeks and still play get to cricket training um, play on Saturdays and, and roll it out again. It depends what is motivating you. And I, I genuinely was inspired to be the best cricketer I could be. And so I, I made compromises. I, I went to, I, I didn't go out. I didn't really mm. drink. I, you know, I enjoyed a social life, but I wasn't necessarily the life of the parties and I, and I missed family occasions and holidays. And, you know, I knew that this is what I wanted to do because it, it really the the motivation of mastery and being the best I could be got me out of bed in the morning. And so nothing mm. would get in my way around that. Um, and then it was a question of learning how. And for me, the how was input of time. Uh, sure, I, I had some talent, but I wasn't the most talented. And so the discipline got instilled well before I was 18. And I remember a coach, and we might you know get into influences a guy called uh, Peter Roebuck, who, who was a great writer and he was a great cricket coach, but he had uh, quite a few interactions with him as a cricket coach and he'd say, I'll see you at 6 a.m. Hmm. I'm, not, I'm not coaching you at any other time. I'll see you at 6 a.m. And it was a test. Do you want to come or do you not want to come? If you want to come, I'll see you at 6. It's okay if you don't want to come. But for a 14-year-old to get out of bed at 5 have some breakfast to make sure that it was a, a, a good session and get himself to a, a training session, you know, put the kid on your bike and, and wheel down there. That, that was, you know, intrinsic motivation in itself to, that said to me that, mm. I, you know, I wanted to do it. And, and that was, you know, certainly part of the journey. 
And I think that that's what separates hard work from talent. Like uh, you mentioned Ricky Ponting. I'm sure people look at him and go, yeah, you were made for becoming a successful cricket player. But I think when you're 14, you don't get given a slip at the hospital saying, Ricky Ponting, you're going to be the next test captain, right? So I think that hard work and in hindsight, it's talent. Yeah, it, that's exactly right. The, the stories we tell ourselves. I think that there is there is definitely a base line of talent required, but holy smokes, the 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 world is full of of talented derelicts. <laughs> I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And so it is that baseline needs to make sure that it's harnessed, and and that harness comes through time and and willingness and discipline and. Mm. Um, a want to to have that motivation to succeed. Mm. Now, magic moments, Ed. I've literally got a million questions here. This is probably the segment the listeners love the most because it really goes beneath the surface into some of those painful learnings, yeah. people you've met, countries you visited, experiences you've had. Is there one painful learning that stands out in in all the different things you've done in your life that taught you the most? Uh, it's hard to pinpoint one. You got to remember just to set the scene that I was an opening batsman and <laughs> <laughs> basically you are a fatalist if you're an opening batsman because you battle away at the hardest time, you know, whether it's on a new pitch against a new ball, against fresh bowlers, whatever it is, and ultimately if you score 300s in an entire season, you've had a good season, which means you've failed a hell of a lot. So mm-hmm. as a cricketer, you learn how to fail. You learn how to deal with failure. You learn how to iterate on failure. And, and learn ultimately to, to become better. And if you make the same mistake twice or three times or four times, you're an idiot and you get nowhere. And so, you know, there's that – I hate the the analogy, oh, cricket's a great metaphor for life and it, you, we hear it about every sport. But there are certain lessons that you can take from playing different sports that are, are certainly analogous to – having a fulfilling and successful life and dealing with failure is one of them because it is inevitable and it's no more mm. inevitable than opening the batting in cricket. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. but to answer the question, I mean, one specific thing that comes to mind, I think um, I got dropped from the test team uh, and for those listeners that aren't familiar with cricket, I'm sure there's, you know, I shouldn't assume that test team is the, the national Australian team, mm. um, you know, the, at that time, best in the world at the at the peak of my powers, or so I thought, and didn't agree with the decision. Was angry. Um, it's it's almost like you feel like you've been left at the station, and you look up and the train's three hundred k's away. Mm. You know, there's there's not a heap of support once you kind of get off the train, and to pick yourself up and say, "Well, I want to do that again." Well, how? I can't just be doing the same stuff because that will get me the same results. How can I actually get better? And what are the hard hard questions I need to answer myself? And without going too technical into cricket, there were some key things that I had to rewire into my game. Hmm. But that takes courage because you've built this for 15 years to be consistent and successful. And all of a sudden you want to unwind a whole heap of that stuff to try and shoot for the stars again. And so it's, can I? am I willing to take two steps backwards to maybe get five steps forward. And I made that decision. And it's probably the most pra- the hardest lesson I've learned, but the proudest I've been of myself because that took a lot of courage. And ultimately, I did get five steps 
more forward to when I got off that train, but I didn't get another chance to play for Australia, which I was very comfortable with because it allowed me to reconcile with myself. It's like, I gave this a go. I know that it worked and ultimately it doesn't matter if you're not selected or you don't make it in every other person's eyes. I could look myself in the mirror and said, I did it. And, mm. you know, that that failure, because it, it was a failure. To be dropped from the test team was a failure. It's something I'd worked 20 years towards. I've, it, it felt unjust when it happened, rightly or wrongly. Yeah. That's how I felt. And so... You know, it it was a grieving process, and then ultimately a learning process as well. Mm. And and I think the fact that it's very public, where it's on the newspaper and it's on the TV, makes it even bigger, right? I think to your point, in the business world, people fail, but often it's in an office environment where yeah. even if you get sacked or you're laid off, it's only your close family and friends that sort of know about it, right? I think the question there that I'm always curious is, and I know you've spoken about the learnings you had from cricket, so I want to ask you that, but that period itself, the first three months after it, say, and, I, and I'm sorry if I'm taking you back to a space you've kind of no, deleted from your mind, but <laughs> say you got that phone call or email or however it worked at that time from the coach as the selector, how did you kind of get through that period? Like, What were your next steps? Did you have a coach or a mentor? Was it your dad? Because the reason I ask is a lot of listeners go through this right but they do it in a private sense but you did it in a public sense and you've worked 15 years for it what were those first few months like when you've had that knock and it's a big knock yeah so i mean the the first stage was even harder because i was on tour and so there was no escape and it was Mm. the first four weeks of a three-month tour and so you're then a ghost uh as the the lackey is you know in cricket Mm. parlance the 12th man Mm. making sure that the person who's taking your spot is as well prepared as they can possibly be for the team success. So let's just remove that because that that wasn't a, a very comfortable <laughs> couple of months. Mm. You put a brave face on, and there's a job to do still for the team, and and you know that's that's part of the gig. So once I decompressed from that Ashes tour, uh, it was as a it, it felt almost like as I kind of alluded to that I was I was dealing with some kind of death of me and you know is it the end am I retiring should I give up um you know why um and all you can imagine those range of emotions and as you say the the public nature of it only compounds these thought Mm. processes and you can have that moment of should I run and hide or you you know and you can fade off into the distance or do you want to kick do you want to step up look yourself in the mirror and say you know what, regardless of what's happened, I can control what is going to happen from here. And and I think that's relevant to any number of professions, any number of experiences, because ultimately you have a choice as to what the outcome can be or how you can approach the outcome. And I think that the process involves the anger, the grief, um, the negativity, but at at that point in time, you need to kick yourself into gear. Uh, and not I don't think that's for everyone, but you learn to deal with failure, and I had for a long period of time. And then it's a question of making sure that you're going through the process of, of reflection. And I don't think people generally reflect enough. And I'm not talking about necessarily journalizing, uh, sorry, journaling. Mm. Uh, you're going to have to edit that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, 
it's it's not a it's not necessarily journaling or reflection as people know it, but actually having hard conversations with yourself consistently is how I'd how I'd describe reflection. And it's not until that you reflect appropriately and consistently that you know deep down as to where the improvement can come and how you're going to get there. And if you're lost in that, that's when putting your hand up and saying, I need help from your mentors, from people you trust, from people outside your sphere of influence. And it might be a cold email. They might have gone through something themselves. Mm. It's it's not a question. You can always do it yourself, but it, the starting point has to has to come from within as opposed to an external factor saying you must do mm. X, Y, and Z. And let's talk about the opposite of that, a bit of positivity. Is there a six-month period or a year, 12-month period that was your favorite out of your cricketing career? Could be pre-Australian cricket team or during the cricket team? Well, make no mistake, I I wouldn't say I was at my happiest while I was playing cricket for Australia. It's a a great honor, Mm. but, you know, come the privilege and honor comes with a lot of pressure, comes with a lot of time away from home. It comes with a lot of sacrifice. And so I would say... The happiest I've been in my cricket career, without doubt upon reflection, was my time in Tasmania when we won two Sheffield Shields in three years. And when I reflect on why, it had nothing to do with my own personal success. It was very much driven by the lessons that I'd learned around building great teams, very much around the friendships that were forged, and very much around the shared experiences of success and how they were achieved. And so when it's all said and done, you're left with those memories of wasn't that incredible that a a group of people came together and succeeded because of their shared mission and values and execution of something that's really bloody hard to do. Hmm. And so that journey, um, when there's a deep amount of trust involved with, with those people, a deep amount of respect and ultimately happiness because of the achievement, you know, that even talking about it now brings a smile to my face and mm. the, that, that can't be taken away. And so that, that shared achievement and those shared memories, they forged very deep friendships that will last a lifetime. Mm. You mentioned earlier about Ricky Ponting being one of your heroes and, and, you, and you played in a team that had an all-star cast, so to speak. Now, we know when, we, when people ask about what separates good from great, you hear the talent, hard work. All, all the good stuff, right? You saw these people in their best moments, in their worst moments. What do they do that, that like a Ricky Ponting or an Adam Gilchrist, some of these really big game players that they did when they were at their bottom, when they were struggling privately or they were going through a family matter that you might have yeah. seen? What did you see they do that you've taken into your business world that you're like, that's the 1% that separated Ricky Ponting from the rest? Yeah. I mean, you see people at their most vulnerable under pressure and Mm. regardless of whether people are doing well or poorly when it comes to uh, professional sport, everyone feels the pressure always. And so all all the – and I'll get to the answer in a second, but just to set Mm. the baseline again, all people see is when people walk through the gate with the steely – steely look on their on their face and in their eyes and you think oh they're they're ready what they haven't seen is that they've been throwing up in the bathroom for 10 minutes prior because mm. the nerves have made them sick and so to be on the other side of that change room you realize how fallible these superheroes in your eyes actually are 
So that's that's the baseline. When you see that they are struggling, the thing that separates them and the best don't struggle for long. I think their mm. dips are, and that I would probably say, and I, I wasn't the best, but I think what separated me from being an okay to good cricketer was my dips were not, they didn't go on for years. They went on for a couple of weeks. Mm. And, um, you know, the problem with me was my highs weren't high enough, often enough, but the consistency was there. But the difference with the great mm. players is their dips are momentary and they have long periods of, of sustained excellence. So what do they do in those dips to get themselves out of that? They are very, very confident in their, what I would call first principles. What has made yeah. them successful in the first place? Because the, temp- the, the people that I saw have long, prolonged dips in performance were what I would call tinkerers. They would think, oh, this, this hasn't worked the last couple of weeks. I better change how I'm holding the bat or my stance or where my bat's coming from and let's let's park the cricket technique. But the, mm. the thought process is, is clear that what I had done before that is irrelevant. And you, you play that out as a, um, as a reflection to the very best. It's like I have deep conviction with what I do is good enough. And if I keep doing what I'm good enough, or if I keep doing what I have been doing, for long enough in preparation in the middle if i if i trust the cake recipe eventually my cake is going to come out beautifully and it's going to mm-hmm. keep coming out beautifully but if i keep tinkering with the recipe and putting in some more salt or some more sugar the odds are against me that i'm going to have an edible cake at the end of it and mm-hmm. it's it's incredible because the temptation is to tinker that is human nature when things go wrong and and they might go wrong through a whole multitude of reasons, be it luck, be it skill, be it error. And so to be able to work through all those three and delineate, well, maybe I have been playing well, but I've been out of luck. Maybe mm. I haven't been playing as well as I thought, and there, there might be something that can help this, but it's still in my basic principles of how I want to play. And so I hope I... Uh, kind of haven't gone off topic here too much, but I would definitely. No, but I think say- it's an important point to say that there is no secret sauce, right? I think there is no silver bullet that separated Ricky Ponting. It's often doing the basics yeah. right, always, and, and having a belief that his basics, mm. which might be different to my basics, for the record, mm. Um, mm. are the the recipe for his success. Mm. And if you if you think broadly now, with and I know you work with athletes quite a bit. We'll get into that shortly. Are there one or two athletes in in Australia who inspire you today, whether they're still playing or if they've transitioned out into another field? There, I mean, there's a whole heap of people that I I get energy from uh, that are currently playing not just cricket but a, a range of athletic pursuits. So one is is Matt DeBoer, who'd be a great mm. guest on this podcast. Uh, has been a co-captain at the GWS Giants, yep. has started athletic ventures, you know, smart, always wanting, humble, always wanting to learn. Steve Solomon is a is another mm. one who, uh, Australian athletics captain, ran in Tokyo, works at Uber Eats, very smart, very curious. Mm. And then in terms of, so they're two current athletes, a, a previous athlete, uh, a guy called Tim Brown, who is the co-founder and co-CFO 
of Allbirds. He played soccer for the yep. Wellington Phoenix and, and New mm. Zealand, but is, is now running a multi-billion-dollar business that he started. Uh, he's he's like the the beacon of what can be if you if you're willing to to park your ego in athlete transition and, and get your hands mm. dirty. Mm. And that leads me to my next question, Ed. I was having a look at your Instagram. It's public public profile, and you posted about the I think it's called the athlete transition series. I think it was yeah. made last year. You made a post about a Zoom. It was a picture of a Zoom call on a on a laptop. Tell us about that. Like, what's that all about? And and we're seeing it more. I mean, Matt's a perfect example that athletes are transitioning better now. And and I mean, Matt's still playing, but people are doing these other things that you did, perhaps, and you're one of the kind of novelties doing it. Tell us about that. Like, what is this athlete series about? And is this you helping athletes? Or are you involved in an investment way? Yeah. So no, not for. It's a pure. I'll put this in the pure passion project bucket, mm. and it came about. You know, I uh, finished playing four years ago. I would say four years prior to finishing playing, I started thinking about transitioning out of sport. At that time, I had a master's degree. I had a double undergraduate degree. I'd done work experience. It's fair to say I was pretty well prepared for the outside world. And then I mm. retired and I, abs- you know, I, I didn't shit myself, but I was very fearful of what lay ahead, even though I had a job to go to even though um, I could not have been any more prepared. And it made me really think if I've done all this work over a long period of time to make sure that I transition well and I'm still mentally struggling with it, I wouldn't want to be someone who hadn't put in this work. And so it, it got me thinking. I still view myself almost as a transitioning athlete and it's been four years. I sort of mentally gave myself five to transition fully. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a way of giving athletes a network to tap into to hear great transition stories. And we interviewed Tim Brown. um, We interviewed Mm. Bianca Chatfield, but so often in athlete transition, we hear about the the car crashes. We hear about, um, you know, the people who end up in jail or with drug addiction, you know, the scary stories to, to scare athletes into action. And I wanted to take the other end of the spectrum and say, I want to inspire athletes by telling the great transition stories. There aren't a heap of them, sadly, but let's tell some great stories because there will be some common threads as to what great transition looks like and how that great transition can happen. And so I was really inspired to, to try and tell these stories. Um, you know, we ended up on some calls having 400 athletes from around the world mm. Um, you know, from Scandinavia to New Zealand, um, local, you know, high-profile professional athletes tuning in to hear these great transition stories because every athlete finishes at some point in time. Not everyone can coach. Not everyone wants to coach. Not everyone can commentate. I had seen, I'd maybe played with, I don't know, let's call it roughly 150 people in my professional career, maybe more. I'd seen Mm. people transition well five times maximum. Wow. Maximum people got jobs, mm. but they ne- by transitioning well. I mean, people who really scaled their next summit and really so loved you, is your definition of that earning more post playing. Not money, no. no okay. I, it, okay. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I would say that are passionate about what they're doing. That, yeah. That's my definition of transitioning well. People get mm. jobs, sure, mm. but in two years' time, they're they're scratching their heads, saying, "Well, it, it might be paying well, but I hate what I'm doing. I haven't mm. found my next passion." Nothing excites mm. me like cricket or football. Mm. And so the people that have done that, I was trying to illuminate. And 
in in many ways it kind of helped my own transition as well mm. Now, I have to ask you about your book, Ed, and, and Nick Crocker, our mutual friend, has got a question here. He wants to ask you, and I believe it's called the In the Firing Line from what yeah. I saw on Amazon. You can, see, you, can still, you can still buy copies for about three bucks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> listeners, get on it. It's a journal from one of Australia's cricket players, so definitely yeah. a must read. So, Nick wants to know, looking back on your book, are you glad you published it mm. publicly? So I would say I've gone always gone through waves of saying yes and no here. <laughs> I think the moment it pub- got published, I was probably not I was not th- oh, not thrilled. I, I probably regretted it to some degree because I was still playing and it was super vulnerable. You know, like for those mm. that may have read it, there were some dark passages in in that book. It was a no holds barred look at what life as a professional sports person over the course of a season, the highs, the lows. And I'd been playing shit the whole summer. I was hopeless. And here I was diarizing about it and printing it for other people <laughs> to read. Crazy idea. Yeah. So looking back though, and we ended up winning the the tournament, um, mm. the, the Sheffield Shield. Looking back, it's it's a moment in time that I completely cherish. And so I'm bloody glad I did it. And if I didn't do it, I'd regret not doing it. The only mm. thing, like all diaries, are it encapsulate. The only regret I have is people think that book is me now, mm. and it was ten years ago. And even the following season, I wasn't the same person. Or mm. the year after that, and yet there's this kind of flag in the sand that people can have a, a, a view on your life and your emotions and your your mental state that probably weeks or months after I'd written it were probably not relevant. They were relevant at that point in time and that's the the joy of a diary and it gives a glimpse. But it, it probably gives people a, a sense of who I am, but in many ways it was it was who I am at that time. It was who I was, sorry, mm, at that mm. point in time and only at that point in time. Mm. Does that make sense? No, yeah, no, it doesn't. I mean, it's, it's a question with, with your view, right? Like I said before, there's no public approval here. It's about... Mm. What do you think? Did you make the right decision? And like you said, things change. So spot on. Now, I'm curious about Tripod Coffee, Ed. I, I've i been lucky to work for a number of years in the FMCG retail space, and, and I've seen brands come and and struggle, where brands come and succeed. But there's not many brands or people who come from outside the industry and create a brand mm. that is physical distribution, logistics, and you've spoken about that on other podcasts. If I can ask, why a physical coffee business over a software business or a tech business? I would, <laughs> my biggest <laughs> learning from uh, trying to scale Tripod Coffee, and it's now a business that's probably been going seven and a half years, is high volume, low margin sucks. And that's yeah. no, that, that, that is no, uh, that's not, not disparaging to, to our little business, but I would have loved to have created a software business. I think it, it, bore, it, it was born out of, Two cricketers who were trying to solve a problem for themselves, uh, which was Nespresso at the time. You know, we we're traveling the world playing cricket. Mm. Coffee in some parts of the world was crap. Can we drink nice coffee but not have a huge environmental impact? And that kind of got us thinking. And at mm. the time, you know, I was interested in in the Shopify technology as a as a business, uh, and probably should have invested in the business back then. Uh, but it was it was a nice what I'd call a live. It started out as a live NBA, you know, like ha, what are the problems that need to be solved 
for trying to scale a, a consumer brand and, and in a small in a small scale, but what, it, it gave us a great sense of of those challenges, and ultimately gave us a great sense of exactly what you just said. But uh, we didn't have a heap of time. This was between mm. training. It started out between training sessions and between games, and as a bit of a side hustle, it's grown you know, since then and, and has done well, but it's given a great insight into, as you say, trying to, trying to work out why these brands fail and it's about distribution and the people who are distributing unfortunately take too much of the, of the pie. And so I mean, <laughs> we, we have, we've been very focused on direct to consumer, but that in itself has its own logistical mm. physical logistical challenges and we see no more than in covid times when it takes two weeks to get things to the customers and mm. even though you're not competing with amazon when people are uh, uh, you know their expectation is to be, have something delivered within four hours or eight hours or 12 hours how is a small brand do you compete with that and mm. you know we have been very focused on our environmental mission we've been very focused on making people feel great about what they're doing through a great product that is environmentally sustainable. And, and it's had great resonance, but scaling that to be a multi-million dollar brand is bloody hard work. And I'd, mm. I'd, I'd encourage everyone to get coding and start a software business. But I must say the satisfaction you get of getting a box delivered and unpacking it and touching it and feeling it and your mates talking about it at a barbecue, yeah. you don't get that with a software and yeah, a tech that's business. True. The app that's could be true. the best app ever, but it <laughs> becomes true. kind of part of your DNA and it doesn't have the same impact as touching and feeling it. I've, like I've never used a social media app, even if it might have changed my life. I don't think about it as much as where should I get my coffee in the morning and no. is it hot and does it taste nice? It just yeah. has a satisfaction that software doesn't have. Well, that's true. From, from mm. a the, the lens of creating utility for someone and something mm. that they love, then we, uh, we've done that. If you read the reviews, uh, whenever a review pops up in our Slack channel, it literally gives me the warm and fuzzies mm. because it's had an impact on their morning. They've had a better morning because they've discovered our coffee or, or whatever it might be. Uh, and you're right, it, it's a, it makes you feel a, a very different way to to software but from from a business mm. lens I'll, I'll take the uh, 80 gross margins every day of the week yeah yeah and you mentioned nespresso earlier i actually spent a couple of years with nestle so if you need any coffee insights happy to have a chat <laughs> maybe off the record um now ed tell me about i noticed you've written a piece on TechCrunch recently about all birds and you alluded before to the founder of all birds uh, obviously it's clear you've got a deep passion for the business i mean there's a connection there to support Tell me about how you built that conviction in the business. I mean, back to what we said earlier, right? In hindsight, it all kind of connects. Yeah. But during the process, it might not. And they've done something fairly bold, some people might say. And they're a New Zealand founders, so kind of don't quite beat their chest like the US do. Yeah. What made you build your conviction in that business? Uh, I mean, like any investment thesis, it kind of comes down to a couple of key pillars. One is the people of of that business and, and the quality of them innovating and building something that people love, as we've kind of just discussed. The growth opportunity, massive, you know, footwear and apparel, huge business. Mm. But doing it from a purpose native standpoint is completely new to the category. Sure, there are some huge businesses that are mindful of sustainability, be it a Nike or an Adidas, but to do it from the bottom up and completely change 
your supply chain completely change how you measure your carbon footprint means that the opportunity is in fact completely different and to have that at the core of every decision means that the not only we'll get to competitive advantage not only is that competitive advantage stronger but the growth opportunity of resonating in a very deep way is is huge and growing and, you know the the greatest investor tailwind of our generation is sustainability and i, I firmly mm. believe that and then you have the competitive advantage and what that process power can do what that counter position uh can do for the brand that speaks to so many and they're really at the early stages of their journey um you know online that they probably do you know two or three hundred million dollars in revenue and you know have 29 stores worldwide but can they have 500 stores and and really change the game absolutely they can it's going to take some time uh but they're doing something pretty special and and to see and share that journey has has been awesome so far Mm. Yeah, fascinating brand. And I mean, again, listeners, if you haven't bought a pair of their product, get out there and try it on. It's a very comfortable product. And I know Ed's a big fan looking at his Instagram. You've done a few <laughs> runs. You've done a few runs in them, haven't you? Done a couple of runs. I've got some great athletic shoes, which are awesome. Mm. Oh, don't get me don't get me started on Allbirds. <laughs> uh, my lifetime value of that brand is insane. Yeah. Because there's another brand, I think it's a Swiss brand that Fedra is now the on ambassador for, right? On, yeah. I don't know if they're different or if they've got some of similar strands to both S- the businesses. Yeah, so, I mean, that's very much, that started in performance and has gone to leisure. Allbird started mm. in leisure and has moved into performance. Um, mm. But both incredible businesses coming from, mm. from you know, the, the problem different angles and obviously that sustainable overlay and, and purpose-driven overlay that Allbirds has um really you know in my mind elevates mm. the brand mm. cool now time for the final sprint ed and when i say final sprint i mean that figuratively i know you've done many sprints in your career so <laughs> is there one investment you've made that you consider the best in your life huh. non-financial in myself in myself for sure uh and and yeah. what that looks like is has been in investing in making sure that i've never uh, put too many eggs in one basket because shit happens. And from in a, in a cricketing sense, you can break your leg. And I had many, mm. many an injury, um, and that could have ruined my career. Uh, and so that investment in making sure that I was interested, passionate, and um, and not only interested and passionate, but actively seeking those opportunities has held me in, in good stead. And it's so hard. You, people don't understand how hard that is to do in a professional sporting setting where people look at you squarely and say, you, you're not focused on cricket. You're not, do you even want to be here? Why are you going to university straight after training and not doing an extra 10 run-throughs or bowling an extra 10 balls mm. or you know whatever it is? But you know, I, I do feel that that created a, a point of difference for me and my happiness and my mental well-being while I played cricket. One thing you'd like to learn in the next six months? Uh, I would <laughs> – there's so much I would love to learn and I always, you know, coming up to New Year's mm. resolutions, I want to I wanna learn how to do a Rubik's Cube in under 20 seconds. 
I think that you okay. know that you've, you've it, said it, it on record. <laughs> but it takes the same kind of thing. It takes it's not rocket science, but you need mm. to learn something and you need to have the discipline and the time to do it. And you know, I mean, that's kind of left field and off the top of my head. But mm. there's a whole range. Uh, every day feels like in my field a learning journey, and I need to consistently get better at what I'm doing at work. Mm. And I, you know. The, the there's a long laundry list of, of things that I need to to do better but that you know in terms of actually putting things on paper and saying I want to learn I've been saying it for a while so maybe putting it out there to the universe means that I'll commit to it yeah maybe we'll look back on it in six months and hopefully I'll send you a video yeah <laughs> please do is there one person a quote that inspires you uh there is and I I think I alluded to this before when, you know, I think I even said, you know, the world's full of educated derelicts. Um, so that this this was next to the Kieran Perkins um, poster on my wall. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't remember who said it, um, so I'm not going to pretend I do, but it was something along the lines of, and it really resonates with me because it talks to the hard work required. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence and then it says talent will not nothing is more successful than unsuccessful men with talent genius will not unrewarded genius is a proverb education will not the world is full of educated derelicts persistence and determination alone are omnipotent and that was above my desk while I was studying for my HSC that was um, you know something that I would put in my cricket journal uh, and is something that you know I think really has guided me over my formative years to to make sure that the hard yards go in because without the hard yards and sacrifice then you know nothing ends up happening. Fantastic! That's a great note to end on. That's the finish line, Ed. Thank you so much for coming it. on. You <laughs> did make it, yeah, and you finished first. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming on, Ed. I'm glad we connected and, and you've had uh, – I think the thing I love about your journey is it's so broad and diverse, but you've kind of gone deep into each of the things you do. So wish you all the best and keep in touch. Thanks, Peter. I can't wait to uh, to meet you in real life and, and, and buy you a cup of coffee. It doesn't even have to be Tripod a tripod. coffee. Oh, I'll bring <laughs> the machine. You bring the coffee. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thanks, Ed. I hope you took away some actionable insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your lives and be 1% better every day. And I look forward to sharing the next episode with you next Tuesday. Stay tuned.